Welcome, dear listeners, to Christ and Cthulhu. I hope everyone has been well since I left off with the Season 1 finale. As we are approaching the new and hopefully better year, and since we're in the midst of the Advent and Christmas season, I thought it would be nice to drop a little read-through before coming back officially for Season 2. The Lovecraft short story I will be reading is titled The Festival, and anyone who's familiar will quickly catch on to why I chose it. It takes place during the Christmas season. It's about as Christmassy as we're going to get with Lovecraft, and you guessed it, it's unnameably terrifying. After we finish, I will quickly fill you all in on what's in store for Season 2. So, let's get to the story. Let's start with the Barnes & Noble's edition that I'll be reading from, and they have a small intro, so let's read it. This brooding, atmospheric tale was probably written in October 1923, and is clearly based upon Lovecraft's visit to Marblehead, Massachusetts in December 1922. Although the town of Kingsport was first created in The Terrible Old Man, it is only in this story that it is identified with Marblehead. Lovecraft later acknowledged that the story was inspired in part by his reading of Margaret A. Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe, 1921, which conjectured that the European witch cult had its origin in a pre-Aryan race that was dr driven underground, a theory now regarded as highly implausible. Lovecraft had also just discovered the work of Arthur Mackin, whose tales embody similar conceptions. It first appeared in Weird Tales, January 1925. The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft Efficient demonis utqua non sunt, sic tamen quasi sint, conspiciana omnibus exhibiant, lactantius. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed on through the shallow, new-fallen snow along the road that soared lonely up to where Aldebaran twinkled among the trees, on toward the very ancient town I had never seen but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. It was the Yuletide, and I had come at last to the ancient sea town where my people had dwelt, and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before. And they were strange, because they had come as dark, furtive folk from opiate southern gardens of orchids and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered, and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town, as legend bade, for the only the poor and lonely remember. Then beyond the hill's crest I saw Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming. Snowy Kingsport, with its ancient veins and steeples, rich poles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow trees and graveyards, endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets, and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch, ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks, and took antiquity hovering on gray wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs, Fan lights and small paned windows, one by one, gleaming out in the cold dust to join Orion and the archaic stars. 
And against the rotting wharves the sea pounded, the secretive, immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time. Beside the road at its crests, a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept, and I saw that it was a burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. The printless road was very lonely, and sometimes I thought I heard a distant horrible creaking as of a gibbet in the wind. They had hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I did not know just where. As the road wound down the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season, and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me, and full of silent hearthside prayer. So after that I did not listen for merriment, or look for wayfarers, but kept on down past hushed lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze, and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted, unpaved lanes in the light of little curtain windows. I had seen maps of the town, and knew where to find the home of my people. It was told that I should be known and welcomed, for village legend lives long. So I hastened through back street to Circle Court, and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement in the town, to where Green Lane leads off behind the market house. The old maps still held good, and I had no trouble, though at Arkham they must have lied when they said the trolleys ran to this place since I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hid the rails in any case. I was glad I had chosen to walk, for the white village had seemed very beautiful from the hill, and now I was eager to knock at the door of my people, the seventh house on the left in Green Lane, with an ancient peaked roof and jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house when I came upon it, and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow grass-grown street, and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so that I was almost in a tunnel, with a low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps with iron railings. It was an odd scene, and because I was strange to New England, I had never known its like before. Though it pleased me, I would have relished it better if there had been footprints in the snow and people in the streets and a few windows without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage and the bleakness of the evening and the queerness of the silence that in that aged town of curious customs. And when my knock was answered I was fully afraid because I had not heard any footsteps before the door creaked open. But I was not afraid long, for the gowned, slippered old man in the doorway had a bland face that reassured me. And though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with a stylus and wax tablet he carried. He beckoned me into a low, candlelit room with massive exposed rafters and dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the 17th century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me, silently spinning despite the festive season. An indefinite dampness seemed upon the place, and I marveled that no fire should be blazing. The high-backed, subtle face, the row of curtain windows at the left, and seemed to be occupied, though I was not sure. I did not like everything about what I saw and felt again the fear I had had. This fear grew stronger from what had before lessened it, for the more I looked at the old man's bland face, 
The ward's very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too like wax. Finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of festival. Pointing to a chair, table, and pile of books, the old man now left the room, and when I sat down to read, I saw that the books were hoary and moldy, and that they included Old Morister's wild marvels of science, the terrible Sadduximus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681, the shocking Demonolatrea of Remigius, printed in 1595 at Lyon, and worst of all, the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred, and Oleus Wormius's forbidden Latin translation, a book which I had never seen, but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered. No one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of signs in the wind outside, and the whir of the wheel as the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spinning. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, but because an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to strange feastings, I resolved to expect queer things. So I tried to read, and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon, a thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness. But I disliked it when I fancied I heard the closing of one of the windows that the settle faced, as if it had been stealthily opened. It had seemed to follow a whirring that was not of the old woman's spinning wheel. This was not much, though, for the old woman was spinning very hard, and the aged clock had been striking. After that, I lost the feeling that there were persons on the settle, and was reading intently and shudderingly when the old man came back, booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous, waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in the corner and got two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned and the other of which he draped around the old woman, who was ceasing her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoning me as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. We went out into the moonless and torturous network of that incredibly ancient town, went out as the lights and the curtain windows disappeared one by one, and the dog star leered at the throng of cowled cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, past the creaking signs and antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and diamond-panned windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanthorns made eldritch drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy, but seeing never a face and hearing never a word, up, up, up the eerie column slithered, and I saw that all the travelers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the center of the town where perched a great white church. I had seen it from the rose crest when I looked at Kingsport in the new dusk, and it had made me shiver because Aldebaran had seemed to balance itself a moment on the ghostly spire. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts and partly a half-paved square 
swept nearly bare of snow by the wind and lined with unwholesomely archaic houses having peaked roofs and overhanging gables. Death fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas, though queeringly failing to cast any shadows. Past the churchyard, where there were no houses, I could see over the hill's summit and watch the glimmer of stars in the harbor, though the town was invisible in the dark. Only once in a while a lanthorn bobbed horribly through serpentine alleys on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway, until all the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Then I finally went, the sinister man and the old spinning woman before me, crossing the threshold into that swarming temple of unknown darkness. I turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow on the hilltop pavement, and as I did so I shuddered, for though the wind had not left much snow, a few patches did remain on the path near the door, and in that fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they bore no mark of passing feet, not even mine. The church was scarce lighted by all the lanthorns that had entered it, for most of the throng had already vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high white pews to the trap door of the vaults which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and now were squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps into the dank, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night marches seemed very horrible, and as I saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed that the tomb's floor had an aperture down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase damp and peculiarly odorous that wound endlessly down to the bowels of the hill past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and steps were changing in nature as if chiseled out of the solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls had made no sound and set up no echoes. After more aeons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to the shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odor of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale light and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for I did not like the things that the night had brought, and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite. As the steps in the passage grew broader, I heard another sound, the thin, whining mockery of a feeble flute, and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world, a vast, fungus shore litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide, oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at the unhallowed Erebus of titan toadstools, leprous fire and slimy water and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the Yule Rite, older than man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music, 
And in the Stygian grotto I saw them do the right, and adore the sick pillar of flame, and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare. I saw this, and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisily on a flute. As the thing piped, I thought I heard noxious muffled flutterings in the fetid darkness where I could not see. But what frightened me most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty venomous verdigris. For in all that seething combustion no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had brought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame, and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head the abhorrent necronomicon he had taken with him, and I shared all the obeisances because I had been summoned to this festival by the, by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness, which player thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce louder drone in another key, precipitating as it did so a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror I sank nearly to the lichened earth, transfixed with a dread not of this nor of any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness, beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along, half with their webbed feet and half with their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figures seized and mounted them, and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river into pits and galleries of panic, where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize the animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet, and wrote that he was the true deputy of my father's who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place, that it had been decreed I should come back, and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed. He wrote this in a very ancient hand, and when I still hesitated, he pulled from his loose robe a seal ring and a watch, both with my family arms, to prove that he was what he said. But it was a hideous proof, because I knew from old papers that that watch had been buried with my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698. Presently, the old man drew back his hood and pointed to the family resemblance in his face, but I only shuddered because I was sure that the face was merely a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it, so that the suddenness of his motion dislodged the waxen mass from what should have been his head. And then, because the nightmare's position barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come, I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere to the caves of the sea, flung myself into that putrescent juice of Earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down upon me all the charnel legions these pest gulfs might conceal. 
At the hospital, they told me I had been found half-frozen in Kingsport Harbor at dawn, clinging to the drifting spar that accident sent to save me. They told me I had taken the wrong fork of the hill road the night before and fallen over the cliffs at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from prints found in the snow. There was nothing I could say because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong, with the broad windows showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the streets below. They insisted that this was Kingsport, and I could not deny it. When I went delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill, they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded, and even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhazra's objectionable Necronomicon from the library of Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis, and agreed I had better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read again that hideous chapter and shuddered doubly because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before, let footprints tell what they might, and where it was I had seen it were best forgotten. There was no one, in waking hours, who could remind me of it, but my dreams are filled with terror. Because of phrases I dare not quote, I dare quote only one paragraph, put into such English as I can make from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Curse the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Sakabao say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil bought hastes not from this charnel clay, but fats, and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are digged where earth's pores ought to suffice, and things have learnt to walk that ought to crawl. I was struck by a few things when I went through this story for the podcast. It had been quite a while since I've read it, so it was pretty fresh for me. There is, of course, the creepy things Lovecraft is a master of. I like the touch about wax and masks. It's a very unnerving image to see someone pretending to be a person, silently moving about with a wax, expressionless face. And in typical Lovecraft fashion, we don't get the full reveal. When the mask slips off, we don't get a description, but it was horrible enough for our protagonist to jump into the disgusting underground river, presumably risking death over facing this creature. I'm not even sure what the plans were for the ritual. Was he to be sacrificed? Perhaps, since Lovecraft is drawing on his pagan knowledge to delve into Yuletide. One of the other things that was very interesting to me from an orthodox perspective is the solemnity and darkness of the town when our character is expecting it to be a bustling, cheery scene. This is, obviously, due to it being some sort of hellscape version of the actual town. It almost has this, the effect of Stranger Things in the Upside Down. There's the normal, everyday version of the city, and the creepy, haunted, dark version. Even the modern architecture and things are gone from this version. Although this is the narrative reason for the dark quiet of the town, I can't help but think of the season and preparation for the joy of Christmas, which is called Advent. 
More and more people, no matter which corner of the Christian landscape you come from, are being made aware of Advent. When I was a youngster growing up evangelical, there was never a mention of the word. Now it appears everyone is getting in on the action, Protestant, Catholic, Anglican, and Orthodox alike. The Orthodox never lost it, however. The ancient church has always understood the importance of preparing for a feast by fasting. This doesn't mean simply abstaining from certain foods and drinks, but taking on and internalizing a spirit of fasting in your behaviors and habits. Diet becomes more scarce so that giving can become more abundant. Entertainment becomes lessened so time for spiritual practice increases. Repentance and confession take center stage in the individual's life. We move closer to what we are supposed to be during these times. It's a concerted effort, and one that flies in the face of everything our modern Western consumerist society has indoctrinated us with since we were young. I said the darkness of the town when the character is expecting merriment and light stuck out to me because that's the way our world should be during the November-December months. Dark, solemn, but not as one without hope, rather as a people looking to the hope to come by faithful preparation. The merriment, the feast, is the day of Christmas and a success of 12 days. In our modern day, by the time Christmas has come, everyone is sick of it and ready to move on. But in the actual established pattern of the church, it is not so. You've been anxiously waiting just as the people of God waited for the day, the sun, to come. I hope you enjoyed this read-through and short exposition. This is a special time of year and very important for Christians. Well, actually, the entire cosmos. Even folks who won't admit it. You can feel it in the air. If you'd like a short yet very dense and powerful read for the Advent Christmas season, I must suggest On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius the Great. I mentioned it in the very first episode of Christ in Cthulhu, and it's something everyone who calls himself Christian should read. Now, for the info on Season 2. I haven't decided when I'll officially launch the series, but it will be sometime early in 2021, God willing. I have also, as of this recording, committed to exploring the Lovecraft novella The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. It is quite long, so I'm going to be breaking it up by chapters or sections. Thankfully, they are sectioned and most are rather short, so there will most likely be a good amount of read-throughs mixed in with some episodes which are more summary-based. It is a fantastically creepy story, and I'm looking forward to going on this journey with you all. What comes after that, we'll have to wait and see, but I'd guesstimate this story alone is good for 25 or more episodes, and I'm currently working on another podcast with my friend Dora, but that one will take quite a while for production. So, Merry Christmas to all of you, and I look forward to sharing Season 2 with you very soon. The music for this episode was provided by a couple of artists. First, we have composer Graham Plowman. You can find his work on GrahamPlowman.com, Facebook, YouTube, and Apple Music. And then we have Lessa Litzvi. You can find their work by searching Lessa Litzvi on Apple Music, YouTube, and Facebook. As always, I've been your host, C.L. Fuquay, and until next time, remember, That is not dead, which can eternal lie. It was strange aeons, even death may die. <laughs>